Pole and the Primrose Path by John Mortimer. With Timothy West as Horace Rumpole and Prunella Scales as his wife, Hilda. Now we are all assembled, um, with one important exception, of course. I would like, as head of chambers, to introduce you all to our new head of marketing and administration, Lucy Gribble, who will, from now on, be in charge of improving the image of chambers. Thank you, Mr. Ballard QC. Thank you, indeed, for that kind introduction. Just a scrap of detail to kick off with. I spell my first name Lucy with an I and not a Y. Whatever for? It makes, I feel, for a snappier image. Ah. Now, Mr. Ballard QC, I address you as chair of this meeting. What did she say? She called me chair. Made you sound like an article of furniture. Oh, do be quiet, Erskine Brown. Lucy Gribble has an important message for all of us. Oh, very well. What we have to demonstrate is that barristers have outsized hearts. <laughs> and now we have a situation, sad as I'm sure we all agree it may be, which gives us the opportunity to show that we do care. So much so that we should all join in a very public display of heartfelt thanks. Heartfelt thanks for what? Heartfelt thanks for the life of one of our number. Horace Rumpole was an ordinary workaday barrister. An old war horse. One who didn't profess to legal brilliance, but one who cared deeply and one we loved as a fellow member of Equity Court. By this act, we shall show that barristers have hearts. By what act is that, exactly? The memorial service in the Temple Church for the late Horace Rumpole, barrister at law. Isn't that a little premature? I notice that no one's yet announced Rumpole's death. Well, let us not forget that after the heart attack brought about by an almighty row with Judge Bullingham at the Old Bailey, uh, Mrs. Rumpole tells me that he's been removed from his London hospital, no doubt, as a hopeless case to the Primrose Path nursing home in Sussex. Hilda Rumpole was trying to put a brave face on it, but she admitted that Horace would be away from Chambers for a very, very long time indeed. And one knows, doesn't one, what places like the Primrose Path are like? The truth of it is that not many people come out of them alive. Then I suggest, Chair, we go full speed ahead with the memorial. We'll need to put together a programme, and we can hardly ask Mrs Rumpole for her help. As yet? I have an aunt in Godalming. I can call in on Rumpo when I go down to see her next. See how the land lies. And I'm sure your visit, Erskine Brown, will be a welcome treat for Rumpo. Whoever had christened this place of eternal rest, the Primrose Path, betrayed insufficient knowledge of English literature. According to Ophelia in Hamlet, it's the path of dalliance. And dalliance in the home was confined strictly to the television. The porter in Macbeth, however, said the Primrose Way led to the everlasting bonfire. This may have been a more accurate description. The inhabitants of the rooms down the corridor were given to disappearing quietly during the night, and leaving the Primrose Path, I felt sure, for the nearest crematorium. It was no particular treat to encounter Claude Erskine Brown in my room at the Primrose Path nursing home. What's your favourite music, Rumpole? Music, Erskine Brown? We know you're absurdly prejudiced against Wagner. Y tell me, uh, when you sing to yourself, what do you sing? Sometimes Pop Goes the Weasel. Occasionally Knock 'em in the Old Kent Road. 
More often than not a ballad of the war years. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. You remember that? No, I'm afraid I don't. Uh, tell me, Rumpel, uh, talking of the war years, did you ever serve your country overseas? Oh, yes, I flew Spitfires in the war. I shot down the Red Baron and was the first British pilot to enter Berlin. <sighs> uh, try to be serious, Rumpel. I only ask because Ballard wants material for his speech. His speech about me? About your life. To give thanks for your existence. We shall celebrate you, Rumpel. You mean it at Chambers' piss-up in Pomeroy's wine bar? Not exactly that, Rumpel. No. Anyway, I'd better be getting back. I've got a rating appeal tomorrow. I envy you, Erskine Brown. You seem to lead a life of perpetual excitement. Yo, there's just one more thing. Do you have a favourite prayer? I pray to God to be left alone so I can get out of here as quickly as possible. It's all far too clean for my liking. I'm sure they'll look after you extremely well here, Rumpole. For as long as you have left. <laughs> An hour later, I was woken from my doze by the sound of a woman sobbing. I moved, as quietly as I could manage it, into the corridor. At the end of the passage, with its linoleum shining like polished shoes, a woman was crying as she watered a bowl of hyacinths. She was Nurse Albright, my favourite member of staff, known to me as Dotty Dorothy. We would sing together songs we both loved, such as Night and Day, That Old Black Magic, and They Can't Take That Away From Me, which I danced to in the far distant time before Hilda's and my fox-trotting days were over. Go back to your room, Mr. Rumpole, before Sister Sheila sees you. Never mind about Sister Sheila. I've grown impervious to the icy disapproval of the head girl. Come into my room, Dotty. Dotty's singing her therapeutic use of herbs, and on many occasions her kindness, got her into frequent trouble with her boss, Sister Sheila Bradwell, who ruled the primrose path with the kind of enlightened and liberal principles which guided Captain Bly when he was in charge of the bounty. Now then, tell me what's the matter. Oh, a terrible night, Mr. Rumpole. It's been the most ghastly night ever at the primrose path. Tell me what happened. Oh, poor Mr. Fatweather. He passed away during the night. They took him away. It was my night off, and they took him away without even telling me. Freddie Fairweather was recovering, Dotty told me, from a massive heart attack. And she brought him herbal remedies to cheer him. And in return, he made jokes and flirtatious suggestions. I always said you and Freddie were my favourite patients. You won't believe what they've done to him. What exactly? Well, sister... Let them take him away without even a chance of saying goodbye. Freddy would have hated that. He was full of rude suggestions, of course he was. He was a bit of a jack, the lad, we know that, even in his condition of health. But underneath all that, he had the most perfect manners. He'd have liked me to be there to hold his hand and say goodbye before they took him. But she wouldn't have that. She has to know best always. We've got judges like that down the old bailey. I hate to say this too, Mr. Rumpole, but there's just no organisation in this place. It's all rules and no practice. You know what else happened last night? Sister Sheila's Piganese has done a runner? No such luck. <laughs> it was a patient called Mr. Masklin. I don't know him. No one seemed to. He was transferred here because they couldn't find a hospital bed for him. 
A pain in the neck, quite frankly, always complaining. Mm. Well, he has been very ill. But it seems last night he just got off his bed and walked straight out of the front door. Mm. I don't suppose we'll miss him, filthy-tempered man, but... Oh, I do miss Freddy. Yeah, I know. But, Dotty, <laughs> this man, Masklin, no one knows when he went? Or well, seems not. Only Nurse Rogers did tell me one thing. What did she tell you? When she went to Mr Masklin's room this morning, the door was locked. Strangely enough, after that sad and eventful night, the primrose path became, in some elusive and quiet way, more interesting. Mr Masklin was an impossible patient, Mr Rumpole. Quite frankly, we were glad to see the back of him. No one saw him leave? No one. That young man, Gavin, wasn't he at the desk by the front door? Gavin is studying for an important exam. He can't watch the door every minute of the night. Mm. Did Masculine have a family? Oh, someone he said was his sister came once. No one's been able to track her down either. Do the police know he's gone missing? We reported it naturally. If you're so interested, I can tell you there's no sign of him at his last known address. My friend Dotty says his door was locked in the morning when she came on duty. <laughs> Your friend Nurse Albright says a lot of things we don't have to take too much notice of. Of course, the door wasn't locked at night. We locked it in the morning until the police came to see if there were any clues to where he'd gone. We didn't want the evidence disturbed. You know all about that, don't you, Mr Rumpole? I suppose I do. All in all, it must have been a terrible night for you. I was sorry to hear about Mr Fairweather. Oh, well, these things happen, Mr Rumpole, at a place like this. They're very sad, but they happen all the time. We've got used to it, of course, and we deal with it as kindly as possible, whatever your friend Nurse Albright may say about the matter. Dotty told me she was very fond of Mr Fairweather. Oh, yes. And did your friend also tell you that dear old Mr Fairweather had said he'd left her money in his will? She never said anything about that. Only that she was upset because he died so suddenly. Yes, well, it's nothing for you to worry about, Mr Rumpole, is it? And if you take my advice, you'll steer very clear of your friend's herbal remedies. Some of them may have unfortunate results. <laughs> oh, doesn't Nanky Boo want walkies? Oh, come on, then. Can't spend all day talking to you, Mr Rumpole, really, I can't. Come along, darling. Sister Sheila recognised no superior being except for one called Nanky Poo, oh, an evil-tempered, spoiled and domineering Pekingese dog, whom I'd seen the sister kiss, fondle, feed with chocolate biscuits and generally spoil in a way she would never treat a patient. Like many of the inhabitants of the Primrose Path, Nanky Poo suffered a degree of incontinence which littered the garden and added some significance to his name. <laughs> Late one afternoon, as I woke from a light doze, I found Dotty sitting by my bed with a surprise present. Dotty, you're a genius. It was half a bottle of claret she'd managed yes. to get opened in an off-license and smuggled in under her Mac. Cheers. Cheers. We shared a tooth-glassful of a wine in the same humble class as Chateau Thames Embankment, but nonetheless welcome to a palate starved of alcohol. Dotty was quieter, sadder somehow. They don't want me to go to the funeral. Who doesn't want you to? Family? No, Sister Sheila. 
and Freddy's special doctor. Freddy wouldn't see anyone else. Mm -hmm. The common run of patients, myself included, were attended to by one of the local GPs. However, the Primrose Path was visited almost daily by a tall, elegantly dressed man in a well-cut suit who moved in a deafening smell of aftershave down the corridor or was escorted by Sister Sheila and referred to by the staff in tones of considerable awe as Dr. Lucas. I've never got on with that doctor. Do you know, they won't even tell me where the funeral's going to be. They said it was Freddy's special wish. He hated funerals. None of us liked them, particularly our own. So he didn't want anyone to be there. It was his last wish, they told me. He wanted to be cremated. Mm, the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire. You know what happened? Dr Lucas and Sister Sheila were there with him when he died. They rang the undertaker, they said, and they had him taken away at once, during the night. As though Freddy was something to be ashamed of. You miss him very much, don't you? Oh, poor old thing. Mm -hmm. Do you know, sometimes he said he was in love with me. She put her hand into the pocket of her uniform... Look at this. ...and pulled out a photograph. A bald-headed elderly man with a nose which looked as though it had at some distant time in his life been broken in hostility or sport. He was sitting up in bed, smiling, with his arm round Nurse Dotty. Trainee Nurse Jones took that. We were all laughing. Sister Sheila said something to me. Was Fairweather going to leave you money in his will? Oh, he told everyone that. Not that I ever really expected anything, of course. But it just showed how well we got on. He said he didn't have much of a family left to provide for. He told me he had a business somewhere in the north of England and he wasn't short of a bob or two. I'm going to find out about Freddy's funeral and I'm going to it. I don't care what Sister Sheila has to say. I'm entitled to do that, aren't I? I can assure you, if you want the best legal opinion, you're entitled to go to any funeral you choose. I'd even invite you to mine. Oh, don't be silly. That's not going to happen. And we're not going to stay here much longer, are we? Mm. The Primrose Path's really just not our sort of place, is it? <laughs> not our sort of place. Dotty's words, together with her account of the ease with which the awkward customer Masklin had escaped from the Primrose Path, fired my enthusiasm. I waited for a night when Dotty was not only off duty, but had gone to stay with her sister in Hayward's Heath. I made sure that she couldn't be blamed by the Obergrippenfuhrer for my having gone missing from the list of inmates. Right. My clothes were still hanging in a cupboard in my room, so I was able to change the pyjamas for my regulation garb of black jacket and waistcoat, a pair of striped trousers supported by braces, a white shirt with detachable collar, and, by this time, shamefully dusty and unpolished black shoes. I had kept charge of my wallet, which had four ten-pound notes and a travel pass in it, so I was soon prepared for the dash to freedom. The way you feel my pulse, the way you test my pee... I paused to scribble a note for Dotty, which contained only my own four-line version no, no, of an old song. They can't take that away from me. I wasn't particularly proud of rhyming pulse with else, but time was pressing, and I had a journey to make. I signed the message, Love Rumpole, put the dressing gown back on over my clothes, and moved out stealthily towards the staircase. The gods who look after the elderly trying to escape the clutches of the medical profession were on my side. Gavin, the quiet and serious young student to whom a shaven head and an over-large brown jumper gave a curiously monkish appearance, was away from his desk, as he was on the night Michael Masklin walked free 
I slid back bolts, undid chains, and passed out into the night, shedding the dressing gown in the darkness of the garden. Dressed as though for the old bailey, I presented myself at the railway station, where the last train to Victoria was happily half an hour late. My first call in London was to Equity Court. Our chambers were silent and empty. I went into my room, which seemed on first glance to be depressingly tidy. However, the eagle eyes of the tidier-up had missed a half-full packet of small cigars at the back of a drawer. I lit one, puffed out a perfect smoke ring, and then I noticed a glossy little folder, something which looked like the advertisement for a country hotel or a tour of the Lake District, except the cover bore the words Equity Court Chambers with the truncated address Best of the Bar, all one word, dot com. Inside, on the first page, was a list of our chamber's members. My eye was immediately drawn to one entry, Horace Rumpole B.A. Oxen, against which someone had written, with a felt-tipped pen, Deceased. <laughs> I immediately lifted the telephone and called my home in Froxbury Mansions. Hilda? Rumpole, is that you? Yes, it's me, Rumpole. And not Rumpole deceased, either. It's Rumpole alive and kicking. I don't care what bedtime is in the Primrose Path. I'm not in the Primrose Path anymore. I've put the Primrose Path far behind me. I'm in chambers. You're in chambers? Whatever are you doing in chambers? Go back to the nursing home at once. Certainly not. I'm coming home to Gloucester Road. I don't need nursing anymore. It would be untrue to say that there was, at first anyway, a hero's welcome for the returning rumple. There were no flowers, cheers, or celebratory bottles opened. There was the expected denunciation of the defendant Rumpole as... Selfish, ungrateful, irresponsible, opinionated, willful, and not to put too fine a point upon it, a pain in the neck to all who have to deal with you. But behind these stiff sentences, I got the strange and unusual feeling that Hilda was fairly pleased to see me alive and kicking. She told me of the impending visit of the two QCs. And when Ballard let her know, over the telephone, that they planned a fitting tribute to Rumpole's life, she guessed what they were after. Now I appeared to be back in the land of the living, she was prepared to fall in with my master plan, and enable me to eavesdrop, as the two leading pomposities of our chambers unfolded their plans to mark the end of Rumpole's life on earth. Accordingly, I was shut away in the kitchen, when Ballard and Erskine Brown arrived... Hilda left the sitting-room door ajar, and I moved into the hall <laughs> to enjoy the conversation. Mrs. Rumpole, we're sure you would like to join us in offering up thanks for the gift of Rumpole's life. A gift? Not a free gift, certainly. It had to be paid for by a certain amount of irritation. Uh, that is strictly true, but one has to admit that Horace achieved a certain notoriety, notwithstanding the fact that he remained a member of the junior bar. Albeit a rather elderly member of the junior bar. <laughs> it's true that he never took a silk gown or joined us in the front row. The Lord Chancellor never made him a QC. His face didn't fit with the establishment. All the same, some of the cases he did attracted attention. So we want to arrange a memorial service in the Temple Church. 
You mean a memorial service for Rumpole? That, Mrs. Rumpole, Hilda, if I may, is exactly what we mean. We're sure that you, of course, uh, Hilda, and Rumpole's family and friends would wish to join us in this act of celebration. You mean you're going to invite that terrible tribe of South London criminals? I hardly think that the Timpsons would fit in with the congregation at the Temple Church. I'm sure there will be many people who aren't members of the criminal fraternity and who'll want to give Rumpole a really good send-off. Thank you for that kind thought, Ballard. Oh. Rumpole! It was at this point that I entered the room, carrying a bottle of Chateau Thames Embankment and four glasses. And now you're both here, perhaps we'll all drink to Rumpole Revived. Hamlet, happening to bump into his father's ghost on the battlements, couldn't have looked more surprised than my learned friends. I was sitting in my room in chambers when our clerk Henry put through a phone call and I heard, to my delight, the voice of Nurse Dotty. I had a visit from the police. They wanted me to help them with their inquiries. I felt a chill wind blowing. People who help the police with their inquiries often end up in serious trouble. Inquiries about what? Oh, poor old Freddie Fairweather's death. They suggest I call in at the station and bring my solicitor. And I haven't really got a solicitor. Well, I'll get you one. Where are you? I'll ring you back. This was clearly a job for my old friend Bonnie Bernard. And I put him in touch with Dotty. A few days later, she called into my chambers to report the result of an extraordinary conversation which they had had with Detective Inspector Maundy and Detective Sergeant Thorndyke in a nick not too far from the Primrose Path home. They were a decent enough couple of officers, but they soon made their suspicions clear to your Mr. Bernard and to me. Suspicions of what? Murder, Mr. Rumpole. Dotty, you haven't done in, Sister Sheila. They're investigating the death of one of the patients, Mr. Frederick Fairweather. Mm -hmm. As if I'd do anything to hurt Freddy... We were great friends, you know that, just as you and I were, Mr. Rumpole. And we still are, Dotty. But what are you supposed to have done to Fairweather? Digitalis. Foxglove? It's used to stabilise the action of the heart. They asked me about the access I had to Digitalis or Digoxin. They seemed to think that I had a huge collection of pills and potions. Well, you do have something of the sort, haven't you? Oh, only harmless herbal remedies of my own, you know that. And of course I had access to digoxin, but I'd always entered every dose I had to give a patient, and I never treated Freddy with it at all. So what are they suggesting? That they had evidence I used a whole lot of digoxin without entering it or keeping a note. That I was seen coming out of Freddy Fairweather's room an hour before he died. And that I had also boasted I was going to benefit from Mr Fairweather's will. It's all completely ridiculous. I went to bed early that night and never left my room until I went on duty next day. I didn't care a scrap about Freddy's will. I only wanted him to get better. That was all I wanted. Nothing would have made me harm him. Nothing in the world. Oh, now, that doctor, Lucas, was it? He must have entered the cause of death. Well, he said the cause of death was a heart attack, that Mr Fairweather had had heart problems. But Dr. Lucas told the inspector that the attack might also have been brought about by an overdose of digoxin. Dotty, you told me you were going to Freddy's cremation. Did you go? Oh, it was terrible, Mr. Rumpole. Just terrible. There was no one there, absolutely no one at all. Sister Sheila had said Freddy didn't want anyone to see him go, but I couldn't believe that. 
There was no one to say anything in the chapel, not a word, not a prayer. And there was just me to watch the coffin slide away behind the curtains. Apart from me, he went quite alone. Is there anything else you want to tell me? Only that I'm angry. So angry. Angry because you know who's been talking to the police. Of course. You think it's Sister Sheila? Who else could it be? They told us, Mr. Rumpole, that they'd be making further inquiries. Of course, we don't know what they'll find out. Perhaps they'll find out why Sister Sheila went to them with a story like that. It was while I was turning the plight of Dotty Albright over in my mind that my room was invaded by a pungent but not unpleasant perfume. A tall woman in a black trouser suit with blonde hair came with it. Got a minute? Hmm? It's about time we had a word. I'm sorry, I, I haven't had a window before. A window? Was the poor young woman shut in some airless oubliette in the chamber's cellarage? But by now, she'd made herself comfortable in my client's chair. I'm Lucy Gribble. Lucy with an I. I'm your new director of marketing and administration. Well, I never had an old director of marketing, so I don't see why I should need a new one. I'm here, Horace. To look after your image. Oh, I know what that means. I've heard it all before. It means you think I should get a new hat. Oh, not at all. The hat's perfect. And the striped pants and the cigar ash down the waistcoat. <laughs> they all suit your image perfectly. Don't change a thing. I'm told that you were behind the idea of a church service to celebrate my death. To celebrate your life, Horace. That's what we were going to do. Of course, that's on hold. For the time being. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Now, I understand you're going through a bit of a sticky patch, practice-wise. Sticky? Bit of a lull. A serious shortfall in briefs. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I've just been instructed in a rather sensational murder case. You're not kidding. Who got murdered? Well, my client's a nurse. It suggested she murdered a patient called Freddie Fairweather in the Primrose Path home place from which I was extremely glad to escape. Not Freddy Fairweather of Primrose. The Primrose Path? Well, I don't know anything about a Primrose Path. The Freddy Fairweather I work for was Primrose Personal Pensions. Oh. He was an IFA. What? Independent Financial Advisor. Uh. Invested anyone's money in what he called a gilt-edged pension scheme. On the whole, about as gilt-edged as a bouncing cheque. Uh. Which is why we parted company. Do you say he's dead? I'm afraid so. And without a memorial service. If he's the same, Freddie Fairweather, of course. Short, square shoulders, no hair, and a broken nose. Mm. Oh, he could turn on the charm, Freddie could. Had a bit of a chip on his shoulder as he'd left school at 15 and never been to university. Well, of course, if, if he's been murdered, you'd never have met him, would you, Horace? I might have done, strangely enough. You say you worked for him. Where, exactly? Do you know Leeds at all? Uh, I'm afraid I have only a sketchy knowledge of Leeds. That's where I started in marketing. I was marketing for Freddie Fairweather. Oh, I won't say they were the best days of my life. I left because I didn't like the way the place was run. And I couldn't stand the company doctor. He was a quack who was meant to examine the pensioners. Oof! Objectionable is not the word. His name wasn't Lucas, was it? Yes, yeah, Sidney Lucas. Ah. That was him. Ooh. But as for Freddie, I mean, he, he might have cut a few 
business corners, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to see him murdered. I looked at her then. Her black-trousered legs crossed, shiny high-heeled boots pointed. An alien being in the dusty world of equity court. I lit a small cigar, and rather to my surprise, she made no protest. I blew out smoke. I'd be very much obliged if you'd tell me everything you know about the late Freddie Fairweather. All right, then. But would you mind passing me one of those whiffs? Oh, with pleasure. Oh, thank you. And we sat smoking and talking together. And what the new oh. director of marketing oh, told me yeah. was of considerable interest. Right. Oof, wait till you hear this, Horace. It was time to call in old favours. I found myself in Pomeroy's wine bar, waiting for a lugubrious figure who wore, however pleasant the weather, an elderly Macintosh and the expression of a man with a cold who forever feels a drip forming at the end of his nose. Hello, Mr. Rumpole. This was, of course, the invaluable sleuth Ferdinand Ian Gilmore, known throughout the legal profession as Fig Newton, who, since adultery no longer had any legal significance, had taken to crime. In this field, his investigations were often more thorough and far more useful than those carried out by the police. I heard you passed over. And I've come back to haunt you, Fig, and also to remind you of the interesting and profitable work I've put your way over many years. Interesting, Mr. Rumpole, yes. Rather less profitable. I wouldn't say any of them paid above the average. What do you have in mind? I invested in a bottle of Chateau Thames Embankment. I'm afraid it was of an indifferent year and not long enough in bottle. I sat Fig down at a quiet table in the corner of the bar... Then I told him all I knew about Freddy Fairweather and the Primrose Path, which had led, in his case so suddenly, to the everlasting bonfire. Then I gave him the list I'd made of the required information. Are you suggesting, Mr. Rumpole, that I do all this as some sort of favour? Fig looked at it doubtfully, like a man invited to swallow peculiarly nasty medicine. We'll try and meet your reasonable expenses. I can't promise you much more at the moment. Time is money. Mr. Rumpole. If you can give me one good All reason... All right, Fig, I'll give you a good reason. I'm just back from a near-death experience. Business is slow, not to say boring. An excellent, charming and utterly innocent woman has been accused of murder. It may all come to nothing, in a way I hope so. But meanwhile, the case is shrouded in mystery and I need your help. And if I can't solve it, I might as well turn up my toes and hang up my wig. Don't do that, Mr. Rumpole. When do we start? I also had more work for Bonnie Bernard, to pursue inquiries at Somerset House, and also now in the Leeds area. And I got him to agree to open informal discussions with Detective Inspector Maundy of the Sussex Police. So, south and north, my messengers set forth in search of information... And I had nothing much to do but sit in my room awaiting results. I was busily engaged in lighting a small cigar while wrestling with the Times crossword puzzle when my phone rang. Hello? It was Dotty. Hello, Mr. Rumpole. Oh, Dotty. Have you been summoned to another interview with the forces of law and order? No, but I've had a call from the Primrose Path. From Sister Sheila? No, from Gavin. You remember Gavin, the quiet boy, university student? He used to be on the hall desk at nights. Always had his head in a book. Yeah, or else he wasn't there much. 
He wasn't on guard to prevent the escape of Michael Masklin. Or come to that mine. We got on rather well. He seemed a lonely sort of boy. We used to make coffee and talk when I was on nights and nothing much was happening. Mm. We argued about God and sex and fidelity and M&M. All those things that students talk about. Mm. It made me feel quite young again. I think he liked me. Well, I'm not at all surprised. Did you talk about the night they took away Freddy Fairweather? No, no. He was away on some sort of course when that happened. No, this call was about his degree. He's due to get it soon from the University of Dorking. He asked me to go and watch. I was rather flattered. And what's he qualified in? Golf course management? Text messaging? <sighs> spiritual furniture arrangement? Aren't they the sort of things you get degrees in nowadays? Nothing like that. Theology. I began to ponder about young Gavin. And his very part-time presence on duty at the Primrose Path, while apparently doing his best to justify the ways of God to man in talking. Dotty, I think you should go to the degree ceremony. Really? Yes, definitely. I might even come with you. We'll get a good seat and keep our eyes open. But before that, I had to go back along the Primrose Path. Sister Sheila was awaiting me in her office. I suppose you've come to apologise for the way you left us, Mr. Rumpole, slinking away like a thief in the night. It merely goes to show that you are still seriously unwell. And by the way, there is a bill for extras which you left unpaid. I haven't come here to apologise. I've come here to discuss one of your patients, Frederick Fairweather. Mr. Fairweather sadly died, Mr. Rumpole, as I believe you know. He had trouble with his heart. As you have. Now, if there's nothing else you want to say to me... There are I... a few little things I'd like to ask about Mr Fairweather. He had a company in Leeds, selling private pensions, hadn't he? Well, that was his business, was it? And you know more than I do. Oh, I doubt that. And his business was called Primrose Pensions, wasn't it? And this is the Primrose Path Home. Well, if that's so, it is a pure coincidence. Really? There are a lot of coincidences, aren't there, about that eventful night. But let's stick to his business for a moment. Didn't he buy this home as an investment about ten years ago? That was when you'd started to run it, and you got to know him rather well. Isn't that the truth of the matter? I really don't see why I should sit here answering questions about the home's private arrangements. That is absolutely no business of yours, Mr Rumpel. I'm afraid it is my business, Mrs Fairweather. What did you call me? By your name. You married Freddy last year, didn't you? In a Leeds register office. He was the divorced husband of Barbara Elizabeth Threadwell, by whom he had one son, a quiet boy named Gavin, who got into university to read theology and is occasionally on duty at the desk in the hallway. I suppose you got Freddy to marry you as part of the deal. Deal? What sort of a deal are you suggesting? Primrose Pensions is in serious trouble, isn't it? The pensions just aren't there anymore. The poor devils who subscribe to Primrose have no comfortable income to look forward to. God knows what will happen to them. They'll be sleeping in doorways and dying on the national health, because the truth of the matter is, Freddy trousered their money. Then he had nowhere to hide, except a quiet nursing home run by his wife, where he could be treated by his company doctor, who would assure the world and the fraud squad that Freddy was far too ill to come to court. Mr. Rumpole, are you telling me you knew Mr. Fairweather well? Since I left here, I've got to know him very well indeed. You must be seriously ill, Mr. Rumpole. Mr. Fairweather has, as you well know, been dead for some time. Are you sure? Sure? Of course I'm sure. It would have been what he wanted. 
You think he wanted to die? People who come here don't want to die, Mr. Rumpel. And not everyone has the fraud squad and the pension watchdog breathing down their necks. Not everyone has filched thousands of pounds of pensioners' money. The time was coming when Freddy's shelter in the Primrose Path might not be sufficient. There was only one place left for him to hide. Death. Are you suggesting my patient committed suicide? Oh, of course not. Freddy wouldn't give up as easily as that. His way out, and I think you know this as well as I do, was a death which was as much a fake as his pension. That is a most outrageous suggestion. My lawyers will make sure you pay for it and never repeat it. Oh, I think your lawyers will have more important business on their hands. I'm sure Freddy's death was discussed, but no one could have planned the great opportunity of that night. It was more by luck, wasn't it, than good management. Mr Rumpel. Mr. Fairweather died of heart failure, confirmed by Dr. Lucas. Mm. His body was cremated, an event which was witnessed by your friend, Nurse Albright, who says he promised her something in his will. Let me first deal with that. Dr. Lucas had spent years as the official medical advisor to a fraudulent pension company. Like you, I'm sure he expected to share in the spoils. You did your best to keep the date and place of Freddy's funeral a secret, but Dottie made her own inquiries. It's true she saw a coffin slide into the eternal bonfire. But whose coffin was it, exactly? Freddy's, of course. Who else could it have been? A man called Masklin? A transfer from a crowded hospital? A man no one knew much about? No apparent friends? No traceable relatives? He left the hospital that night. Was it, perhaps, the night he happened to die? I'm not saying you and Lucas killed him. I don't think you did. I just think his death was a stroke of luck. It meant that one of you could tell the undertaker that the dead man's name was Frederick Fairweather. And now, do you want to know why I've gone to the trouble of finding all this out? Because you got into a panic when you thought Dotty was asking too many questions and finding out too much about that dubious event in the crematorium. So, you decided to discredit Dotty by making her a murder suspect. So you spun the police some ridiculous story about too much digoxin, implying that she would kill Freddy because he'd promised to remember her in his will. But there wasn't any will, any more than there was any fatal heart attack. When you next see Freddy, give him my regards and ask him if he's enjoying his death. I got up to go then, and the room, which had seemed so still, was full of movement. <laughs> Nanky Poo jumped out of his basket and started to bark, a high-pitched, irritable yelp like a particularly difficult patient complaining hysterically. At the same time, the door opened and Dr. Sidney Lucas stood in my way. He was looking at me in what I took to be a distinctly unfriendly fashion. Dr. Lucas, this man is mad. He's seriously insane. He's been talking nonsense to me about... about poor Freddy. Dr. Lucas filled the doorway, considerably younger, taller, and a great deal stronger than I am. Excuse me. Detective Inspector Maundy of the local force is waiting for me outside. He'd be very worried if I don't emerge. I did warn him that I might have some difficulty leaving. Whatever they had done to help a crooked businessman disappear from the face of the earth, however outrageous and reckless that plan had been, and however dishonest the doctor's conduct, the mention of the local constabulary made him step aside. I walked away from the primrose path for the last time, and towards the forces of law and order. I was prepared to make a statement. The University of Dorking is not an old foundation. The Assembly Hall is a modern glass and concrete building 
in front of which stands a large piece of abstract statuary built, as far as I could see, of flattened and twisted girders and bits and pieces of motionless machinery. But inside the amphitheatre, the vice-chancellor, the professors and the lecturers were decked out in pink and scarlet gowns with slung-back medieval hoods. I sat with Dotty among the proud parents behind the rows of students. Gavin, in his clean white shirt and hardly worn suit, looked younger than ever, hardly more than a schoolboy. As he waited his turn in the queue, his eyes had searched the audience. When he saw Dotty, he gave her a small, grateful wave and a smile. Now he stepped forward to get his scroll. Congratulations. Thank you. Look now, Dotty, up there. <coughs> we turned and looked up to the entrance of the assembly hall. High above us, at the top of the rate seats, was a doorway. Freddy Fairweather had just moved to where he could see his son, far below him, get his degree. He stood there, a small, broad-shouldered, square figure with a broken nose. It was a moment of pride he had not been able to resist. As a great chancer, why shouldn't he have taken this risk to see Gavin get what he had never had? a university degree. <clears throat> he turned away, meaning to disappear again into the world of the dead. But he was stopped by Fig Newton and Detective Sergeant Thorndyke, who had been waiting for him, at my suggestion. So, the case of the Primrose Path never got me a brief... Neither Sister Sheila nor Dr. Sidney Lucas, when arraigned for their various offences, thought of employing Rumpole to defend them. Freddy Fairweather ended up in an open prison. Gavin has taken holy orders and returned to Leeds. I still meet Dotty from time to time, for tea in the Waldorf Hotel, where we sing, quietly but with pleasure, the old standards together. The way you sip your tea. The memory of all that. No, no, no they can't take, take that, that away from me. I must say that I won't hear a word of criticism of Miss Lucy Gribble. I owe her a debt of gratitude. She graciously allowed me to come back to the land of the living, and she helped me solve the mystery of the Primrose Path nursing home. They can't take that away from me. No, they can't take that away from me. In Rumpole and the Primrose Path by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. His wife, Hilda, Prunella Scales, Samuel Ballard, Michael Cochran, Claude Erskine-Brown, Nigel Anthony, and Lucy Gribble, Sophie Thompson. Nurse Dottie Albright was played by Joanna David, Sister Sheila Bradwell, Carol Boyd, and Fig Newton by David Shaw Parker. Rumpole in the Primrose Path was directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.